Presidings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash EW. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine for our second episode in our special tailhook coverage. Episode two, tailhook on the floor in at the Nugget. Yeah. So what, what a busy day. It's things, a busy things are going day. This is just day one. Day one, and we're already here in our second show. So who do we got with us right here? Yeah, our guest uh, today is uh, Lieutenant Commander Renato DePaulis, uh, an EA-18 Growler pilot in, uh, in a department head tour now at a squadron up at Whidbey Island, here with his wife, uh, visiting, uh, visiting us and, and talking about an article we published this week uh, that he co-wrote with Lieutenant Commander Andrew Gennetti, and it's called A Modern Force, What Happened to Talent Management? So, so let me just read the first... Um, the, the intro to this article, and then that'll, that'll launch it. So, with prospective threats mounting around the world, the Navy can no longer continue to operate with a Goldilocks-like disregard for modern competitive corporate principles. Take it away. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, first of all. I really appreciate it. Excited to be here at Hook with all the naval aviators and uh, folks who support naval aviation. So, uh, it's absolutely fantastic and an honor to be here. Uh, yeah, the article is wants to talk about it, raise the uh, topic about talent management, want us to modernize the way that we do it. And obviously, anyone that's been uh, a person that's gotten a fit rep, promoted or otherwise, know that timing and sometimes some other subjective measures get tied to it. And also, that also goes into what jobs may they become eligible for and then how we pick who gets to go to those jobs may not necessarily uh, be the most optimum way. And so we think if we optimize the manner by which we select individuals for positions, at the same time, obviously, uh, how we also rank them, we will get a better product for the Navy. We'll be able to actually modernize the way that we, ex- uh, excuse me, the way that we develop our culture, and uh, we move forward to you know, fight our adversaries. So, what are, what are the mechanics of the optimization? Explain to the audience, and don't assume that they understand how talent management is done now, fit rep wise or timing wise. So what are we doing currently, what's wrong with that, and how can we fix it? Okay. So from my standpoint, and uh, I might not be completely informed, uh, but my experience is uh, fitness reports, right? You have a, a time that you're going to be in a squadron. There's an expectation that you would receive what is characterized as an early promotion fit rep called an EP. And that EP is kind of the standard to say that, you know what, you've done a good job, you've achieved the milestones, the qualifications and or the experience that we so require and we want you to move along to the next place but a lot of that determination is not necessarily made from objective measures it sometimes can be forced because of timing so if you're timing short then we seem like we might have to drive someone towards an early promote fit rep a little earlier than maybe they're ready for and then conversely uh, we also might bring in other factors that uh, you know, don't really stand by, you know, stand, you know, very normal or uh, I guess as a civilian would, uh, would probably characterize objective measures. And so 
we, we set it not to be snarky or what have you. It's just our system that what often does happen is certain individuals might get overlooked based on personality traits or what have you, you know, in favor of other personality traits, not necessarily the work that they've done. And so we look at... So what, what could some of those be, th- theoretically? Per- what sort of personality traits um, are tend to get uh, not promoted or not screened, and what personality traits do get promoted or screened? Yeah. I don't and wanna, and obviously, we're talking in massive generalization. Massive generalization, yeah. yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, I think, really, if we, if we look at it, maybe a little bit different word, we look at it from the perspective of what is not being emphasized at times. Okay. And so what we see is that what is not necessarily emphasized is is that person have all the qualifications, right? That person that is actually the best at their job. And so you, you, you parallel that to the civilian sector. If I'm a computer programming or a software company and I have a bunch of computer programmers, I am necessarily going to probably promote and or pay more the individual who is the best at programming, right? I want to retain that person. I got to make sure I move them along. And there's ways that civilian companies do that. The way that we do it is by giving early promote fit reps. But when you don't focus on the person that actually does that particular job the best, whatever their call is, right? That company has a call to make XYZ software. Our commodity is lethality. So for us, it should be war fighting skills and qualification. When that particular person isn't necessarily promoted over and above someone else that isn't as good at that um, and maybe spends time on things that are less important but seem to draw attention, uh, that that tends to kind of skew where our priorities are and it tends to erode trust in an organization. So. I think that's how I would characterize the system. That's a bit of what we talk about in the paper there. So we just had on the previous episode of the podcast, we had Graham Scarborough Heed uh, talking about Top Gun and talking about standardization and about how over the last 50 years that program has grown and it's also impacted the Navy uh, in terms of thinking about standardization and tactics and, and war fighting, uh, and it's impacted uh the other parts of the Navy that now have WTI programs, right? And so he talked about the selection for Top Gun and then where the Navy, it, it sounded like a pretty um, rigorous talent management program for Naval Aviation to take Top Gun grads and then put them into key jobs uh, at the RAGs, at the weapons schools, in the test community, et cetera, to make sure that that Top Gun skill set and the training capability and the expertise is then used well by the Navy and not just withered on the vine, right? So how does that square with, with what you're saying and what you're seeing within either the Growler community or just the Navy writ large? Yeah, uh, I think that Top Gun holds a fantastic standard. We're here celebrating the 50th year of Top Gun. They are the standard bearer. They have been for uh, development of tactics, tactic standardization. Uh, they are a hallmark and a benchmark. So we have a lot to learn from, I think, as a Navy in talent management from Top Gun in the way that they, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's brutal honesty at Top Gun or in any debrief when you go to Nautic as it relates to your performance. And that a brutal honesty is objective. And so when you have that objective information, that standard that they're holding, we can get better. And so Top Gun as an organization and as they permeate and pick people for different positions, they bring that brand with them. They carry it with them. But what can happen and does happen because the Navy is such a large organization, that message can be lost. It can filter out, uh, not necessarily as strongly as we want it to. But I believe that we can help, you know, we can help the Navy on the aggregate by modeling some of those behaviors elsewhere. And that, that goes to that objective standard uh, that they want to maintain throughout uh, you know, their entire organization. So I think every community can learn from that. Every community does it in varying, varying ways. 
Uh, and so certainly that's something we can learn from. So I agree with uh, Mr. Scarborough there, uh, certainly uh, would uh, concur with that, that sentiment. So what is it the Top Gun is doing right? I mean, we know what they're doing right on the objective measures. You know, obviously, guys who go through Swifty and they perform well, et cetera. But it seems, and I think the Blue Angels also do this uh, well, is the subjective assessment, right? That these are sort of the intangibles, if you will, yeah. of, of a personality fit or leadership style. And So how would we standardize and, and measure those things? Because to, to my eye, the difference with um, a good leader or not are, are things relating to charisma, senses of humor, empathy. You know, it's sort of hard to grade those, but we kind of have to have to be able to, right? Absolutely. Uh, and again, I think that's more of a pure fitness report type, you know, discussion, which the paper isn't really solely focused on that. Uh, and I think you bring up a good point. Um, those things, you know, just being an ESTJ on the uh, the scale in terms of your personality is maybe not the best thing because you don't have a lot of empathy, right? And you certainly, when you're going to lead 18-year-old sailors, uh, that is very important. And those are key things that are always going to have to be subjectively assessed. So that for the unlearned, that's a strong Campbell that's acronym <laughs> you just laid out there. <laughs> that's an aggressive personality. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good. Okay. Type so A. That you yeah, can get. Very right. type A. We have a lot of those in the Navy. Yes. And so... I 100% concur to that, so I don't think the paper is trying to take away from that that portion of subjectivity. That is a commanding officer's, that's that's their role, that's a major responsibility for a commanding officer. Does this person have the temperament? Does this person have the compassion? And all of those intangibles that they need to lead other human beings into what is difficult and often trying times. And so, totally agree there. I think there's, there needs to be some, within the fitness report system is what, we take a piece of it in our discussion in the paper, which is, they're just... When it comes down to if you're talking about someone's tactical capability, you can't honestly and sincerely say, and we grade things one through five, right? That's the marks on the fitness report. You can't earnestly say that that person gets a five or a four if they're not the most tactically qualified person in the squadron and they're not up to par. And so there are places where there's objectivity that could be induced by, you know, using the standards that Top Gun puts out. And those can inform the fitness report system so that we don't need to completely overhaul it. Uh, you know, I, I did the sample fitness report system. I think 360-degree evaluation is incredible and fantastic. I want to know what people, my peers, I want to know what my uh, the people that I lead, I want to know what they think. I want honest feedback. That is all important. But at the same time, fitness reports are comprised of a whole number of categories. And if we could make at least a number of those categories objective, we would have a better system than we have today. Because when you get an early promote fit rep, it also comes with this thing called a summary trade average or a GPA for in kind of typical parlance. And if you're going to give someone an EP out the door, they have a high GPA, which means they probably didn't have a one on tactical. They probably had something higher than that when they maybe not necessarily from an objective standpoint should. And so... If we want to have a culture that prioritizes warfighting, which is our commodity, then our fit rep system should weigh that maybe a little more heavily, and you do that with objective measures, and maybe also with a reorganization structure of how the fit rep is weighted. But again, those are things that some group of a bunch of thinkers can can work through, but uh, it really has to be that core principle that the CNO, uh, former CNO laid out, warfighting first. So is your sense that we do want to have a culture of warfighting first? Right. I mean, because you've been out there, you're not just writing papers, you're trying to make this thing, you know, come to life. 
So what's your sense, what's your reaction been from leadership, et cetera, so far? Reaction from leadership, anytime we're fighting first is, is, is espoused in any conversation is, yes, we, we want to do that. And so... And you think they're sincere? I think they're sincere, okay. but I think the ability to do it based on some of the structures that we have in the Navy at times uh, is, is challenging. And so... And oftentimes you go to a job, you don't really change a lot, right? It's difficult to change things. It takes time uh, to change things. And sometimes when you're only in a job for a short period of time, you might not be able to change things. And so I think there's a sincere effort uh, from the top to bottom, uh, from, you know, the, the CNO all the way down to probably, the, you know, the, the seaman on the deck plate. He's like, I want to do warfighting first. I want to focus on that. But, but when we have a system that grades you, if you will, these fitness reports, eval system, that isn't fundamentally aligned with that concept, weighted most heavily towards warfighting, whatever that is for that particular job, then there's a, there's a break in trust, right? It's a discord between what is the message at the top and what is actually being effectuated on the deck plates, whether uh, no matter what rank you are and how you're evaluated, and then therefore how you're evaluated is the things that we prioritize. And so in high-performance organizations, those things are in unison. There's usually an accord between what the vision is for the organization necessarily and then how we actually effectuate that in, in terms of our job performance assessment. And so when those things are not uh, in balance, that's when we lose organizational trust and that's where we lose aviators. We're talking about retention too, right? So I think that there's a lot of aviators that would talk like, we say we're fighting first, but I'm doing a lot of admin. Got it. There's going to be admin because guess what? We lead people. And, and so there's an, there's an element of that I think people accept. But when you really break it down, whether it's an NMCI issue because it takes forever to log on to a computer and you're wondering why you have to take extra time to do this, there's reasons. But at the same time, things are really inefficient. So that's what a lot of the sailors see. That's what they feel. And like, well, that doesn't sound like warfighting first. And then, oh, by the way, when I'm evaluated, I'm the best in my shop. I'm doing great. But I just haven't been here for enough time. So I'm not going to be getting an EP, right? So how do we fix that? And I know some of the new fit rep systems are supposed to move away some, from some of this timing. Uh, these snap lines is, I guess you could char characterize them. But when you think about it and think through it, uh, I think the leaders, to respond to your question, I think leaders are totally bought in. It's just how do we do it? And so a lot of the papers that uh, I've been working on in this paper in particular is, hey, this is just one small way. I don't want to be a problem admirer. I want to provide a maybe a simple solution we could action on, uh, Andrew Gennetti and I, and, uh, and, and try to move forward for the team. So you've mentioned a lot about fitness reports in the Navy and, and uh, the current Navy fitness report system uh, started about 1996. I was a lieutenant at the time and I remember when it came out and suddenly there were a GPA and a, a reporting senior standard you know, grade point average and all these things, right? Uh, which seemed to be an improvement over the previous system. Uh, in, in fact, most of us in my, my year group thought it was much better than the previous system. But now it's 25, uh, 23 years later, right? And NavFit98 <laughs> is the fitness report system, the computer program. And, and one of our uh, frequent contributors to proceedings in the blog, the Salty Millennial, right? He wrote last year, happy birthday, NavFit98. You know, 20, 20 years unimpeded by progress, right? So you've, you've mentioned a little bit about um, being able to uh, get a glimpse of what the Navy might be going to in terms of performance uh, evaluation, right, system. What's that look like? And, and where's, is, it, is it moving ahead? Are they still testing? Are they still trying to figure out what it should look like? Uh, but we're, you know, we're now 20-something years into a system that came out in the 1990s just after the Cold War ended. 
Absolutely, Bill. I'm going to be a good patch wearer. I don't have a good answer on that one for you. <laughs> I'm not the expert there. I know PERS is here. I think they got that one in hand. I only got to see a test module of it, and, and that was only my the only limited experience I had with it. Got it. So but PERS it, it, is here, yeah. and they're doing, <laughs> right? there is a panel on which day? Is this day? Okay, I think it's tomorrow. Okay, yeah. right? So you're attending that panel? I'll attend the panel. If Are you, you like going to be the surprise, uh, <laughs> surprise Q&A guy? Right, right. You know? But but part of that, at least what you saw, might include some 360-degree evaluation, right? So this has long been in the discussion that the Navy ought to move to a, a 360 eval system or a 360 fit rep system so that you're not just getting the view of the commander looking down at somebody, at an officer, but you're looking at... You know, what is his peers or her peers and colleagues and, and also subordinates think about that person, right? So you get a different perspective when you look at that that way. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's, uh, I think it's helpful to be 360 degrees uh, in terms of perspective, but I think there's also some flaws with it. This is my opinion. I don't speak for anybody uh, other probably than Mr. Gennetti, but he'll be by, it's, I'm sure, at some point in the next couple of days. It can turn into a popularity contest. Yeah. Right? So, um, in organizations that accept mediocrity, high achievers are disliked. That's a fact. Bill Belichick will say it. Nick Saban will say it. Any person that writes about leadership and organizational culture and climate will say that. Um, it just is what it is. If you accept mediocrity and you're a person that's a high achiever, you become the strange bird. Uh, you become the person that's it's easy to, to accept mediocrity, people that's more comfortable. And so if you have a 360-degree evaluation that could be a popularity contest and you don't have a culture that is focused on excellence and is willing to accept mediocrity at times even though we say we don't and doesn't necessarily place warfighting first which is in accordance with what our vision is uh, or set forth by the previous CNO then naturally there's going to be some undesired consequences or results probably in that new fitness reporting system so objective measures is, is what what we see is how can we add some objectivity to kind of balance this possibility of subjectivity. It's kind of like counterbalancing with the, uh, you know, the, our constitutional system, right? With the legislator and the judiciary, if you will. So. Yep. When you say a culture of mediocrity, if I'm, if I'm a, a, a non-aviator who's a fan of the podcast, um, and I'm like, how can that be so, right? If I'm flying super hornets or growlers, how is there even a thing called mediocrity? How does mediocrity f manifest itself in in a carrier-based squadron um I again think we're it, not we're not putting the who in it here yeah right it's just sort of in, in a general sense what is the insidious manner with which mediocrity may permeate a squadron probably the thing i'd say right off the bat i don't think any person that joins the navy wants to accept mediocrity at all i think it's a it can be a function of uh burdens placed by the system like we were talking about administrative trivia it it makes it more difficult to take the next step, to do the next thing, to get become excellent. And so it's not, it's not necessarily the individuals in any kind of way. So I, I think it's more of a system, uh, and it's also alignment of from vision to structure. right? So if the structure is set up, and I was talking to Bill earlier today, and I have no problem mentioning it, you know, if you have leaders continue to have courage to challenge the status quo, to prioritize warfighting as an example, and make structural changes to how they lead their units and or organizations, you can foster a culture that wants to take that next step where everyone's looking to take the next step to get better and better and better. And I think that's where maybe the, you know, it's not the who, that's where some of the challenge can come, you know, where 
leaders don't know that they have the ability to do that at times, so they maybe don't feel empowered. And I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a commanding officer. I'm not a uh, commander of any other uh, organization. I'm a lieutenant commander and a department head. And I get I get that opportunity in my department to to communicate a vision and say, hey, how do we take a step forward to be better every day? But it's it's empowering our leaders to know that they can make those changes, giving examples of how to do it, because not everyone is here like wakes up every day with some innovative idea of how to change something that's been going on for X number of years, whether it's the fitness report system that's 25 years or the, or any other, any other tradition that has been non impeded by progress. So I had a question for you. Uh, you just came off of a deployment on the USS John C. Stennis. Yep. Uh, your squadron is back. Uh, so a big part of prioritizing war fighting first is readiness, right? So, uh, you know, this is one of those things where you, you might have to accept mediocrity if you don't have enough up jets, if you don't have enough optar to fly those jets, if you don't have enough, you know, maintainers to keep the jets up and operating, right? So how is readiness in the fleet right now? How was it during your workups, during your deployment, and now that you're back, did you have to give up most of your, your up jets to a squadron that was going on deployment? Like, how are things in terms of uh, shadows on the ramp up at, uh, you know, up at Whidbey? Up at Whidbey, yeah. Well, Whibby is pretty blessed. So a couple, couple uh, things I, you know, need to say. Number one, I wasn't with the squadron for workups. Okay. I was at the weapons school. Um, I joined them mid-deployment, so I didn't get to go through all of that. I was a part of uh, readiness generation being at the weapons school with with ARPS, but so I can't speak to that. Obviously, they were resourced through workups. Uh, they were resourced on deployment, and then now we came back and we're in a maintenance phase. So we're in maintenance phase. Um, obviously, we don't have as many resources. We're starting to lose our qualified individuals. So that obviously affects our ability to continue to perform. But the thing I would just say in response to all that is when you don't have resources, you can still find a way to be brilliant at the basics. And brilliant at the basics is really what it's all about, right? When we're faced by the enemy, when we're on stun power, no matter what it is, whether we're on the line uh, with maintainers, when they're when they're working hard in the if maybe we're only doing one shift maintenance or not, because that's all we can actually do with resources uh, and flight time or whatever it may be, we can still be brilliant. So we can still strive for excellence. We can still build our skills and find smart ways to do it. Uh, we're doing it in our squadron. Uh, we have, uh, we're also fortunate in the Growler community. We have newer jets, but um, you know we have five up jets. So you know, we have five jets and we have five up jets. So wow. it's pretty good uh, being a, a VAQ 133 wizard right now, even though we're in maintenance phase. And yet at the same time, we can prior to, we've taken time to use what in our community is a new syllabus that does focus on the basics. You know, I kind of liken it to uh, whether you like Tom Brady or not. He's out there practicing his form for a throw. He's not always scrimmaging. And so he's doing drills. And so we're just doing drills, keeping ourselves sharp so that when it comes time to face the enemy, we, we're ready to ready to execute. Uh, and then when it comes time to get built up with resources, we're ready to take it, uh, take our uh, skills to the higher end fight. Well, there's a lot going on here at uh, Top Gun. One of the uh, uh, one MC. We always do that. I always do that. Top yeah. Gun. I have Top Gun on the mind because uh, I just yeah. spent you know three weeks producing 22 pages of it. Yeah, a lot going on at Tailhook, and uh, they're about three. to start the first, first panel three. discussion, which is on the history of Top Gun. Top Gun and so we're going to break yeah, now and go to that. But uh, Renato DePaulis, Lieutenant Commander, uh, Growler Pilot uh, with VAQ 133 out at Whidbey. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for writing for Proceedings. And you're a repeat offender, so we look forward to what you'll write for us again. And uh, enjoy your time here at, uh, at Tailhook. Great to meet you in person. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. All right. And uh, that's example two for today of how victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you again tomorrow. Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Northrop Grumman. 
Northrop Grumman applies electromagnetic maneuver warfare to seamlessly target and combat enemy threats across any domain. By leveraging traditional spectrum-based and next-generation innovations, they're giving your forces a decisive advantage. That's why they're a leader in transformative airborne EW. To learn more, visit NorthropGrumman.com EW. 